Welcome to We'll Always Have Paris, a podcast that dissects and discusses culture's best and worst love stories set in the city we call home. I'm Rachel Kapelke-Dale, author of several novels, including The Ingenue and The Ballerinas. And I'm Nafkote Tambarat, author of The Parking Lot Attendant. And I'm Chris Newens. I'm a journalist and non-fiction writer. Today on the pod, we'll start out with This Week in Love, a segment that brings you up to date on what's been on our minds in the world of romance. Today, we debate what constitutes oversharing when it comes to sex. In an appropriate twist on the topic, two of us reveal that Richard Curtis movies really messed us up in the 90s, while one of us admits that he may have benefited from the same Curtis tropes. Also, we all learn new sex terms. Then it's time for The Love Story, the segment where we do a deep dive into a classic Paris-based love story from fact or fiction to figure out whether it works and if we buy it. Today we'll be talking about Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas. We ask, is it better to be an artist or a tastemaker? We also determine that it's clearly better to be an artist than a housewife and come up with theories about what really constitutes a genius. Finally, we'll round things off with a game of Marry, Fuck, Kill, the segment in which we apply the classic slumber party game to the characters from our main love story. In this episode, Naf tells us how to keep Gertrude Stein keen. Hint, it involves hobbits. This podcast contains explicit language and discusses adult themes. Please listen with care. Thanks for joining us. Now, here's this week's episode of We'll Always Have Paris. And now it's time for This Week in Love, when we tell you what's been on our minds this last week in the world of romance. So this is a question that I got from a friend, and we had a conversation about it, and so I wanted to open it up to the podcast. Let me let me try to give some context. I think especially as women, we are we have been told over the years, like, of course we should talk about sex. We should talk about sex with our friends. But my question is, when is it too much? When is it not cool to talk about your sex life with your friends. And I will say that in the conversation in question, again, no names will be mentioned. It was specifically about a person who was not bragging, but almost about just how much sex they were having with their partner. Oh, this is this is fascinating because I do think there's no objective line, but we're going to try to draw one all the same. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> So my my initial take would be that at the beginning of a relationship, you assume that your friend is – like if your friend is in the beginning of a relationship, mm-hmm. you assume they're just fucking constantly. Mm-hmm. And also you cut your friend a lot of slack if they feel the need to talk about that, right. particularly if this is the first time that they've been in you know such a relationship in a while. When you say it's fine, is it just we fuck all the time or is it – so what I really like is to kind of put my head in there, you know, like how, 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 how detailed is okay. Now, if I told you that in confidence. <laughs> I I think I think the the dividing line would be honestly, genuinely, like what's entertainment? 
you know, not in terms of like, that's interesting. But, yeah, but in terms of so, I I think everybody at this point, like in our thirties, expects that you know, okay, if you're having sex with somebody, they will likely be telling close friends at least mm-hmm. something about it, or the, those friends will be assuming you know things about their sex lives and what you know. Have, <laughs> Well, uh, even Hemingway wrote about it, Chris. He said, you know, I have a terrible habit of imagining the bedroom scenes of my friends, um, let alone measuring his cock size in comparison to Fitzgerald's. We have a Hemingway month coming up, guys. (laughs) Don't worry, we'll get there. But uh, at the same time, I think it's need to know for entertainment value. Like, you guys, I had the craziest, strongest orgasm of my life mm-hmm. is entertain. Like, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, that's mm-hmm. interesting. Versus, like, then he slash she slash they did X, Y, Z act to me mm-hmm. that it's like, well, that's just... I, like, what was the result, you know? <laughs> right, right. Unless you're asking a question like there's a problem. Like, they did they did this to me and I felt a way about it. Is that okay? I really feel like it's it's notable events. It's, it's like a newspaper. It should be notable events or questions. <laughs> Fucking love this. Yes. All the news that's not fit to print. Yes. So good. So good. I love it. Yeah. That's my take is that, yeah, it should be like agony aunt advice right. column right. stuff. Or like, I never knew I could have multiple orgasms. Isn't this yeah. exciting? Yeah. But it, it shouldn't be just like, and then he went down on me for four hours. And it's like, well, what do I do with that information? Like, good for him. I'm sorry for you that you didn't come earlier. Right, like, right. what? But but it's nice that he was willing to, uh, I don't, like, yeah. No, it shouldn't be this neutral, flat territory. Mm-hmm. I want the peaks and the troughs. That's yeah, all. Yeah, that's all yeah. I want. Chris, what do you think? I almost never talk about sex with my friends. Okay. It's not, I mean... Is this a gender divide? I I mean, I think it is a gender divide to, I mean, to a degree. I've never, because I think that the there are guys who do talk about sex, but it tends to be more just the sort of general, like, bragging kind mm. of stuff. Like, I've never been in a group of guys who have, like, got into any specifics about anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's really just not... In my experience, I mean, I'm sure there are guys out there who do this, but like... They're not English. (laughs) (laughs) And her labia. (laughs) I don't think an English accent can even pronounce that. Yeah, impossible. You try. (laughs) Lubia. (laughs) Yeah, so I mean, I don't even... And to be honest, I mean, I have a number of female friends, but it's not something that I talk about with um, them either, because I guess as a guy, I'm sort of I'm on the other team somehow. And it would probably make me feel awkward and embarrassed. (laughs) No, you never feel awkward and embarrassed. (laughs) Couldn't possibly. Not that Richard Curtis has made this sexy in any way. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, he's an awkward, handsome Englishman. Oh, oh, my heart, my heart bleeds. The 90s really fucked us over. And that really does feel like an underlying theme of this entire podcast. (laughs) I mean, speak for yourself. (laughs) So I will give my opinion, but also I want to say that my friend gave the caveat of also, what if you're, this is someone you see frequently, almost every day. Like, I guess like, do the rules change if it's a friend that you see every once in a while versus a friend you see all the time versus, you know what I mean? Like, does that kind of affect how much or how in-depth you go? Yes, to a certain extent. I I think it just depends. It's not so much how often you've seen them, but how mm-hmm. close you are. Mm-hmm. You know, there are things that I talk about with my sisters or my close friends that I wouldn't talk about with a 
kind of casual acquaintance. I used to work in a um, for a mail order T-shirt company. And I remember there was this uh, woman who worked there part time. And um, she uh, she came in and uh, you know she came in on I think like the Thursday and I was chatting to her and I was like so um just making conversation so you know did you did you have a nice week and she said yeah I um I got spit roasted oh. and I was like I don't know I have no idea oh, really it's uh, it's when you have uh, sex with two guys at once <laughs> oh don't we call it being Eiffel Towered. I've never called it anything, <laughs> but that's no judgment. <laughs> okay, I'm actually, we're going to fact check that because maybe being Eiffel Tower is something really different. Wait, so you said, how are you doing? And she was like, what? I was spit roasted. In a really casual way. <laughs> in England? In in England. Yeah, we do have sex. <laughs> Wait, no, but you don't talk about, like, I just can't imagine a British woman coming into a store and be like, oh. Hello. Oh, look at the tchotchkes. What? There's something off with her because that's not a correct response to that question. Agreed. Even in America, you wouldn't start with that. You would at least... You build, you build up to it. Yeah, you, yeah exactly. <laughs> you would build up to it. <laughs> I mean, I think the thing is that with friends, you want to walk the line of like sharing an intimacy like brings you closer versus it drives them away. And I think if you either of you misjudges, the ex- and it's really tricky because if either of you misjudges that level of closeness, like here it's a work acquaintance, mm-hmm. you know, telling you something that I would say if I'd been in that situation, I would probably only tell like my sisters and one or two very close friends. But, you know, it's also about your levels of, shame and openness and cultural stuff well so i'll say so i want to say two things one is that i also i almost think that the question of how often will you see the person you talk to is a bit mm, not that important what might matter more is how often will you see the person about whom they're going to be talking about and then i'll say also that as someone who grew up in such a sheltered environment we never talked about sex i had no idea about anything before I went to college when I was 18 and I was so terrified and now when I look back on it I kind of think and actually even now I think I wonder if maybe talking about sex and maybe that's not maybe the case for straight men but I maybe for straight women maybe for queer people is that how we kind of learn what's okay and what's not right like you talk you know you talk to your friend and they tell you about a misadventure and you go this is I mean this is really after school especially but isn't that how we learn what what we should look out for, right? Is there, and not that we should always talk about sex. I'm not, I'm not trying to prescribe, we should always talk about sex just in case someone might need our help. But I wonder if maybe that openness with someone who's you're close to, who you feel comfortable with, is not just a matter of kind of sharing gossip, which is, by the way, excellent. I love gossip. I'm not trying to cheapen the power of gossip. She wants all your weird penis, penis. Yeah, she wants all your weird penis stories. All of them. Bring it in, babies. Is there like, an, actually, the kind of reminds me of gossip. Is there like an information gathering part of it almost? Is it, it, and also, and actually addendum, by not talking about sex, do we make it such a, oh, it's such a hot topic. It's such a major thing. Are we, are we almost like recreating this feeling of, Someone has sex, especially a woman, especially someone who's not a straight man, and then the floodgates are open, right? Like, do we kind of almost not cheapen it, but do we make it more of a quotidian thing so we can talk about it in the same way that we talk about other things that annoy us, that make us happy in our daily lives? 
Yeah, I do think that communication about sex is necessary, including with people you're not having sex with. I really do think it's just a question of judging the intimacy level and trying to get a read on the intimacy level that the other person thinks that you have too, Mm -hmm. so that you're not making them uncomfortable or making them think that you're overreading a situation or that you have intentions. I know that for me, the the moments that you were just mentioning, these kind of moments of, oh, like there's something really off here, have really come to me actually more in like uh, in my retellings of things, particularly as I get older and the the more removed they are. But I'm also somebody who figures things out as they talk if podcast listeners have not figured that out yet. Samesies. Yeah. But yeah, this is about kind of like, it's about being generous in conversation, just, yeah, in general. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, as you say, if you're you're telling a story because it's a good story, that's one thing. If you're telling the story because also you need to tell somebody about it, that's another thing. But then there's a huge amount, I think, of, well, actually, there's another caveat, which is also that, you know, a lot of talk about sex is a way of building intimacy between the two people who are not having sex because you're talking about a very intimate act but if it's neither of these three things then it probably is just boasting or on the other hand it's being you know mean about somebody's weirdly shaped genital (laughs) (laughs) or i mean or whatever (laughs) i think the basic point is for me it's like going into a partner's diary which I've I've never done except for AI Luke from last episode. <laughs> but, but I always think, what's the worst thing I could learn in there? And would it be worse than me breaking their privacy and, and going into their journal? So I think when you're thinking about sharing something intimate with a friend, think, is this worth having them imagining my cum face? <laughs> And if the answer is yes, then you should go for it. <laughs> Rachel teaches storytelling. <laughs> and ethics. <laughs> Honestly, the fact that we don't make you pay for this <laughs> is truly charity on our parts. You're fucking welcome. Masterclass with Rachel Kapoki Dale. Look, I'm telling you, when you say, what, you you think, oh, he made me come six times, you're not thinking about what those six times look like? <laughs> you are. But in that case, it's like, I came six times. That's a story. That's worth maybe, you know, <laughs> the picturing. But it's just like, and then he was going down on me for four hours. There's no story. There's no arc here. It's like, yeah, okay. And throughout this long, boring conversation, my... Uh, I don't, your face is going all weird, buddy. Like, uh, that's that's what we got. So it's a complex calculus, but life is a rich tapestry. So that's what we've got. Where's the arc? <laughs> so Upshot, only talk about sex if there is tension, character. <laughs> and if it's worth your friends picturing your cum face. I think we got it, you guys. <laughs> And now it's time for the love story. Yes, I am here to talk about Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas. And I just wondered what you guys know about them. Gertrude Stein is a self-identified genius, but also identified by other people as being geniuses. And Alice B. Toklas, from my limited reading about it, is someone who I feel like was kind of 
not allowed to be her full self while in relationship with Gertrude Stein? My knowledge of them is a hundred percent from the unmovable feast in which Ernest Hemingway is incredibly cruel to them and talks about them as disgusting and uh, Gertrude Stein as very judgmental. The one thing that I retain from Gertrude Stein is that uh, she said you can either buy dresses or you can buy paintings. Mm-hmm. And like her, I have chosen to buy paintings <laughs> <laughs> to the benefit slash detriment of those around me. That's great. Yeah. So obviously Gertrude Stein is most famous for being the the person who ran a salon in early 20th century Paris up until the 1930s. And it was a salon which attracted most of the famous modernists of the era. Everyone from Picasso to Hemingway walked through the doors and she had an incredible collection of art, both from those artists and from uh, the century before. People like Toulouse-Lautrec, Cézanne, she used to own uh, a lot of their paintings as well. And she is most well not most famous but she's also the person who coined the term the lost generation she has a great term i gotta give her that and this is something that i really enjoyed when i was reading about her is it wasn't her term but was actually that of a uh, garage mechanic who was servicing someone's car and she was there as well maybe her brother's car it was after the first world war and he was like god you're all the lost generation all of you guys and she was like wow that's that's a good one i'm i'm pocketing that i I will see also i maybe i lied about what i knew about gertrude stein because i think that really her her true genius was that she had excellent taste and that kind of goes in line with maybe her hearing something like that and going that's an expression for B, she poses a big question, which is, would you rather be the person who determines taste? Would you rather be the one creating things that others judge? Or would you rather be the judger? Because I do feel like I have a big judgmental side where I like to go through things and go this, not that. Yeah, these, I mean, these are definitely great questions. And I think we can get into them in more detail later on. The other thing about Gertrude Stein, uh, which I neglected to mention there, which is interesting, is that she was also a writer herself. How good a writer she was is up in the air. Asked Naf, as you said, she was. She did say that she was a genius. She claimed to be a genius. From everything that I have read, her partner, Alice B. Toklas, Alice also thought that Gertrude was a genius. And we're going to talk about the two of them, because actually the more research that I've been doing into Gertrude Stein, the more that Alice B. Toklas keeps coming up. And I know that we're here to talk about their love story anyway, but it's, I think, the sort of one of the questions that I'm going to pose is that could Gertrude Stein have even been Gertrude Stein without her partner, Alice B. Toklas. Oh, this is fascinating for me because I know so little about Alice B. Toklas aside from literally the title of the book. I'm obsessed with Alice. I am. I can't, I can't lie to you. So she, so yeah, Gertrude Stein's, in terms of being a writer, her best selling book was called The Autobiography of Alice B. Toklas, uh, her partner. That was the best selling. That was the best, easily the best selling one. Because she didn't have any success until then, right? Not, not at all. I mean, she was pretty much self-published up until that point. And then she wrote this thing, which is claiming to be the autobiography of her partner. But it's effectively Gertrude Stein's autobiography, because really it's a memoir of 
all of the times that the two, you know the times that they spent in their salon in Paris. And there's actually there's very little of Alice in it. It's all Alice saying, "God, what a genius Gertrude Stein is." Maybe Gertrude is a genius. That's so smart. I should do that with my partner. And Alice is like, if I could write a fucking book, I would tell you, but I don't know how to write a book. (laughs) There's also a little bit of uh, controversy because Gertrude Stein's writing was so impenetrable. And there was a lot of question marks as to kind of, could she actually write at all? And anybody who knew Alice and read the biography said that this was written so much in Alice's voice that there were a lot of people who actually thought that she might have been the one who wrote that book, which, let me say, having read that book, I I don't know Alice B. Topless, but um, I I think there is a possibility because she then later in her life did go on to write uh, quite good lucid books, including a cookbook which are written in a very similar style. So she's definitely got, she had the the ability to do it, definitely. So it's like shrimp cocktail. I was born in Kansas. I get completely Oh, and, and, and this is like, a, our, our audience, I think, to this point doesn't know, but Chris is an incredible cook as well as... Uh, let's use the Hemingway term aficionado of food. I mean, I think incredible might be pushing it a little bit, but I do make a damn good mushroom and cream pasta. So I feel like we're all aficionados of food. I don't want Chris only that title. I will. You can have it too. I will eat anything. Yeah, me too, but I'm an aficionado. <laughs> all right. <laughs> but, but with that in mind, I will say that I, Chris's reading of a cookbook very much interests me. Uh, but it's so it's to to be clear it's not, it is a cookbook but it's also another volume of memoir in many ways it's it's about the food that Alice cooked for Gertrude throughout the What life. year is that? Uh she wrote it in like the early 1960s but like when she herself was 70 something That feels so modern to me like it's a cookbook but it's a memoir Yeah yeah, yeah. it feels like a blog It got kind of quite famous in the counterculture as well because it includes a a recipe for hashish fudge um so the hippies loved it (laughs) oh man i'm just i'm like i i'm actually feeling sad for alice and gertrude at the moment for how happy and like accepted and just normalized their relationship would have been today and it's just like yeah cool come to paris be partners together cook some pot brownies have some fun nobody's thinking anything whereas yeah in their day well in their day uh you say that and that it would have been true on a global level that, you know, in the rest of the world, that their relationship would have been really frowned upon. But uh, I read a, a, sorry, I listened to an interview with one of their biographers, someone who wrote a biography of both of them. And she was saying that Paris at that period was just another planet. And in fact, their relationship was just considered broadly normal. um, Even at those, I mean, normal, they were still, um, sort of like pushing the boundaries of society but in Paris people were pushing the boundaries of society all the time we're going way back in time to the late 19th century when we'll start with Gertrude Stein because she's the more famous of the two I'm hoping to change your mind eventually on this and I am very much team Alice on this uh, on this one Rachel's looking up their astrological signs before she decides <laughs> very quickly Gertrude Stein was born in Pennsylvania originally 
to a wealthy Jewish family. They moved around quite a lot when she was growing up. They spent several years in Europe, I think including some years in Vienna and maybe a short amount of time in Paris. Then eventually came back in her teens to settle in California, in Oakland. So as I say, they were, they were very wealthy and Gertrude Stein was definitely very smart. I don't know if she's a genius, but definitely very smart. And uh, she was extremely close with her brother, like really, really close. And this is a fascinating thing as we go on because her relationship with Alice was extremely close, like extremely close. And so reading about it, I think that she was definitely somebody who was extremely good at forging relationships and just had that natural tendency to be drawn to other people. As I say, she had this very close relationship with her brother. They both went off to university. Gertrude Stein went to Johns Hopkins University to study medicine, of all things. But while she was there, she actually studied under William James brother of Henry James, who was a psychology professor and philosopher at the time. And this this was where she got her first exposure to writing uh, because they used to do like automatic writing exercises together, which people would say went on very much to influence Gertrude Stein's stream of consciousness writing when it came about. However, she dropped out of the university pretty soon. You know, I think after just a year and a half Although William James did say that she was a genius. Oh, no, just a very talented pupil. I, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, the genius word, it gets bandied around a lot, right? Like, certainly by Gertrude Stein. I think a lot of being a genius also is someone saying that they themselves are a genius. I think that's one of the first criterion, criteria for it. But I think a lot of self being a genius is self-confidence. I, I think the first step is you saying you're a genius and then other people can go along with it or not. Okay, well, just to, you know, to put a line under this, let's say that Gertrude Stein never had any qualms about any of this. She had no qualms about saying that she was a genius. She wouldn't have had this. Uh, she was like, she was one of three geniuses who she knew. I love, I do love. Who were the other two? Uh, one was Picasso and then the other one, I... Uh... Certainly wasn't Alice. Don't, uh, don't, don't think there's any heartwarming about that. The other one was Alfred Whitehead. Oh, right. The person who we were all like, oh, of course, Alfred. <laughs> right, known for identifying whiteheads versus blackheads. Yes. Little known fact, he's the one who came up with that strip that you put across your nose, and then you take it off, and you're like, that's on my nose? Alfred Biore Whitehead, yes. Exactly. He was Viennese. You might have seen him in some of the Neutrogena commercials. Very old, but wonderfully clear skin. Yeah, modernism couldn't have happened without him. Yeah. If this is a bait and switch. The whole episode's going to be about Alfred. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, she, so she dropped out of university pretty young and went off to Paris with her brother, who, as I said, she was very close to, her brother Leo Stein, who already had like a, a burgeoning art collection of some of the kind of the great artists of the latter half of the 19th century, people like Cézanne, Toulouse-Lautrec. And they were all there in his apartment in Paris when she went over. Eventually, he and he used to he had a little bit of a salon in which artists would be dropping in and out of, in which apparently in those days in the early days Gertrude Stein didn't say very much. Apparently, she laughed quite a lot and was just a general merrymaker. Eventually, he moves out of the apartment and goes on to do other things, and Gertrude Stein takes over the salon and. That's also when she starts meeting the new kind of like upcoming artists, and she's. Obviously a great host. 
I mean, I don't know if she herself is like, she's not serving the drinks, but she's definitely very good at chatting to people. <laughs> um, meanwhile, let's go back to uh, Alice, who was actually born in San Francisco. So, so grew up really close to, uh, to Gertrude Stein. And this is interesting, just as a sidebar, because California, this is really early days for California in the early 1900s, mm-hmm. late 1800s. Yeah. yeah. That's funny, because that's something I didn't really think of as uh, an English person. I just think, like... I, I mean, just to point, because I think that when you say, you know, like a, a woman who later partnered with a woman to grow up in San Francisco just generally sounds like a very relaxed, accepting environment. But I think, like, San Francisco in 1910 was a very different place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was part of a reasonably big family. She went off to go and study music, actually, in the University of Washington. But then her mum got sick when she was at university and her mum died. And so she then had to come back to San Francisco to effectively look after her dad and brothers. And she became, at the age of 20, like a a sort of like a housekeeping figure. So she really sort of like the die was cast for what she was going to become be later on in her life without giving away too many spoilers. There was a big earthquake in San Francisco. I don't know if you've heard of it. I've heard tell. <laughs> what? No, yeah. me too, I knew. <laughs> earthquake. And Gertrude Stein's brother comes back to San Francisco and Oakland because he's got a lot of properties that he has to sort of look after, which have been damaged or destroyed by the earthquake. It is his tough. Looking after all these properties. <laughs> and he come, But he comes back with a few paintings from his collection. I think just three paintings from his collection. Alice goes to see these paintings that he's sort of set up uh, to cheer people up after the earthquake. So, oh, so this was his charity work? <laughs> he was like, come look at my money. <laughs> sorry, sorry, your house has been burnt down. Um, here's a Suzanne. <laughs> But woke up, but here's some post-impressionism. <laughs> Three pieces of artwork. Are you pleased? How do you feel? Assuaged? Okay, great. Now, these guys are huge back in France, honestly. <laughs> Alice enjoys seeing these paintings. I don't know if they make her get over the earthquake or not. She enjoys seeing them and she gets chatting to Leo Stein. And she's always been talking about this desire to go over to Paris. And this is the thing skipping ahead a little bit but this is basically what really consolidates it for her and so she heads out over to Paris in 1907 and obviously when she gets to Paris she goes and pays a visit to Leo Stein and his burgeoning salon and that's where on literally her first day in Paris she meets she bumps into Gertrude is there any record from either one of them of this meeting is there any record <laughs> Um, the um the way that alice describes it and when i say alice describes it i mean gertrude describes it in the voice of alice this is uh gertrude being alice talking about gertrude (laughs) she seemed to send out waves of inaudible sound like bells clanging in another space than ours oh my god it's worse than if she just said she's really hot like Now, I'm glad that you bring that up about her hotness there, Gertrude Stein's hotness. Gertrude Stein was, you know, not uh, a looker, particularly. Like, she was not famous for being especially good looking. Alice B. Toklas has been described in various places 
that I read as one of the ugliest people who I've ever seen. Oh, shit! Yeah. That's what Hemingway says. He sounds, I, I think I remember Sallow, something like this. Yeah, I have actually got a, a, another quote from, um, I think it's MFK Fisher that I'm going to read now about the uh, appearance of Alice B. Hockless. It's so annoying because you just think about like like Oscar Wilde and his lovers at this time and like nobody was just sitting there evaluating their hotness. Exactly. And it's just like, yeah, they were having the same issues, even worse legally, you know, in terms of same-sex relationships. And it's like they're not commodities in the same way or possible commodities. Exactly, exactly. And I feel like Gertrude Stein also kind of got away with, not that she should have to, but got away with kind of being a personality and was interesting and when she wanted to be funny and charming and smart. And, you know, where was Alice B. Togles going to be charming? She had to cook, she had to clean, she had to do shit, not to step on the love story's toes, but... Like, it's hard to be a hot bitch when you, you know, you've got a lot of shit going on domestically. MFK Fisher on Alice B. Toklas, uh, who she never met. Of course, I know exactly what Alice looked like, and so far have not seen a picture of her that matches my own inner ones. Most of them are timid about how ugly she was. She was probably one of the ugliest people anyone had ever seen to draw or photograph. Her face was sallow, her nose was big or even huge, and hooked at the same time, almost fleshy, the kind that artists try not to draw. And she had a real moustache. Not the kind that old women often grow, but the sturdy kind, which started when she was first going into adolescence. I don't think she ever tried to shave it, or have it plucked. Good for fucking Alice, okay? Hot. Love it. Sorry, keep doing Uh, Or removed chemically or with hormones, as women might do today. She wore it unblinkingly, as far as I can tell. MFK Fisher got all the answers. She's like, here are four ways you could have gotten rid of your mustache. She's <laughs> being Seventeen magazine. <laughs> For a woman she's never met. That's it. What I'm hearing is that Alice had other shit to do besides, like, deal with her facial hair. And, I'm, and honestly, she just really seems like she'd be someone who's super attractive with the mustache. Doesn't need to remove it. Well, it's a good point. Another friend said, more aptly or at least better for my own picture, that her strong black moustache made other faces look nude. I do like that last bit, you know, as in like an unusual feature looks so good on somebody else that you start to reconsider all other faces. Anyway, so Alice and Gertrude meet one another. First day Alice is in Paris, 1907. It is firework city. They're just like, they both click. They are just completely instantly in love and move into Alice moves in with Gertrude very soon she she doesn't go back to San Francisco she's like that's it we're in love we're we're together now they start living this uh, this life together in in Paris and this is when Gertrude Stein's salon really starts taking off with a bunch of different artists sort of all kind of like dropping in this is in the early days so we're talking pre-Hemingway here but artists like Matisse Picasso You know, I think Cezanne would uh, drop in occasionally um, if he's still alive at that stage, which he probably is. Like, um, he definitely, his paintings were there at the very least. Matisse had the idea that they should start meeting on Saturdays. And so it was every Saturday evening, that's when all of this sort of, this cavalcade of modernism would just sort of come knocking on their uh, in, on their road in the, the Rue Fleurus, I think it's called. Like, where, where is that in Paris? It's just south of the Luxembourg Gardens. Oh, good place, good yeah. place. <laughs> These people were not the household names that they are today when they were doing this. I mean, a lot of them were 
almost completely unknown. Uh, some of them were just sort of beginning to get known. And, and so obviously at that time, Gertrude Stein was able to buy a lot of their pictures for super cheap and just started decorating the walls of her salon in which very quickly became well, maybe the greatest collection greatest single collection of modern artworks ever assembled right. just off the back of her own own money their first holiday that they take together they go to florence romantic or just outside of florence they take lots of walks in the sunshine and go and see sort of more artwork I one would imagine they're extremely happy together they just they absolutely just head over heels in love and it's on one of these long walks that they're taking that Gertrude proposes to Alice with I'm sort of paraphrasing here but effectively the words I will be the husband and you will be my wife Although her words of proposal might not have exactly been, I'll be the husband, you'll be the wife, but they did slip into very quickly super like rigid gendered roles, effectively, in which Gertrude Stein did nothing <laughs> and <laughs> Alice B. Toklas did everything. Like she would cook and clean and just make make sure that Gertrude was like cared for in every single way. As Gertrude said, it takes a lot of time to be a genius. Uh, you have to do a lot of nothing in order to be a genius. I do yeah. think Gertrude was in a, was a genius, but maybe not in the way that she thought. <laughs> um, <laughs> but as I say, they were extremely happy with this, uh, the, this setup. They had somewhat saccharine pet names for one another, including... Baby Precious. Oh, what? <laughs> Against. <laughs> One of those is enough, surely. Baby Precious. Your Darling, or YD, which was it was shortened to. They called each other Wifey quite regularly. Mm. And my personal favourite, this is Alice used to call Gertrude Stein, Mr. Cuddlewaddle. <laughs> I love it. I'm, I'm, I'm so down. I'm back in. I'm absolutely back in. Maybe Precious was too much, but somehow Mr. Cuddlewaddle has run, run you round. I think it's a mister. <laughs> I think it uh, butchers it up for me sufficiently. <laughs> <laughs> so just, but you know, I mean, it was pretty much plain sailing all the time. Like they, they, as far as I'm aware, they had no affairs. They spent almost every day of their lives post meeting one another with one another the only sort of feathers feathers were occasionally ruffled such as when picasso squeezed alice's hand under the table and gave her a kind of like knowing look and hemingway apparently tried to uh, sleep with gertrude he would <laughs> he was never gonna go for alice alice and gertrude turned down picasso and hemingway uh, yes! for of their love for one another. I, I, and also expressed sexual preferences. <laughs> and expressed sexual preferences. Oh, right, those. <laughs> but generally, she was doing all the stuff which gave Gertrude Stein time to socialise and time to write. And what was Gertrude Stein's writing like, I hear you ask? Or maybe you know, have you read any of it? Or uh, you said... You read some poems and didn't like them. I just remember a lot of kind of incomprehensible gibberish, to be totally honest. I read I read the autobiography, and I did read Three Lives. That was a while ago, so I don't remember it very well. Okay, so I mean, the autobiography is not representative. Right, yes. Her most famous quote is, Rose is a rose is a rose is a rose, is 
like one of the kind of famous sentences mm. she wrote and people asked her what it meant. Alice wrote back and was like, Ms. Stein uh, says that the sentence that she wrote about roses is exactly about what it says that it's about. Another famous uh, quote of Gertrude Stein's would be, um, out of kindness comes redness and out of rudeness comes rapid some question, out of an eye comes research, out of selection comes painful cattle. Well, it's less famous than the first one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Moving moving forward beyond that, after they've so they've had success, they go on this tour of America, uh, they have tea with the president, they have a party with Charlie Chaplin. It's good fun for them. <laughs> then then the war happens, the Second World War. They they decide to stay in France again, which is a pretty baller move for two Jewish lesbians as the Nazis are coming in. As a bit of a spoiler, it doesn't doesn't go super well. Um, I mean, no, it's fine. It's it's fine for them, but uh, their reputations don't come out unblemished. How so? When the Nazis come in and occupy France, they sh- w- would be expected to be uh, taken off to to the camps. But instead, they head down to the south to Vichy-occupied France, and Gertrude is very good friends with a major collaborate like a a sort of someone who's very high up in the collaboration Vichy government called Bernard Fay and he's like personal friends of Pétain and effectively through her relationship with uh, him they get like special dispensation so not only are they not touched by the Gestapo but her entire art collection is left untouched as well. She does do a little bit of translation work for Pétain. She's also, in the 1930s, she was reported as actually being quite in favour of Hitler. Although it's possible that what, when she was saying what she said about Hitler, that she was being ironic. But that's um, hard to say. Oh, that's, that's the risk. Through a kind of a bit of soft collaboration, they basically managed to carry on as normal during the Second World War. In fact... Gertrude Stein at some point refers to it as the best years of her life. Alice is able to acquire stuff to cook in her kitchen from what she describes as the blessed black market. And they're still entertaining people at their house in the south of France and uh, just having a, a, a great a great time. And it's a little bit less hectic. The war comes to an end and they get to return to Paris. But um, unfortunately, Gertrude Stein dies shortly after the war in 1946 of uh, stomach cancer, leaving Alice bereft and on her own with the most valuable painting collection in the world, but apart from that, effectively no real other money to her name. And so Alice is there. She's living in this apartment filled with Picassos, Cezanne's, uh, you know, Toulouse-Lautrec's and stuff like that, but is unable to make ends meet. She's got a small stipend. She's basically sort of starving through some of it. You might ask, why didn't she sell the paintings? But out of her... Because she loved Gertrude so much. It's because she loved Gertrude so much. That's right. And so... I mean, get some food, though. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, she didn't, didn't sell any of the paintings post Gertrude Stein's death out of love because they reminded her of Gertrude Stein, but also out of a dedication to this idea that this collection should yeah. sort of stay together and that it had a, a real historical import to it. Mm. However... She goes on holiday at some point, I think, to Spain. And Gertrude Stein's family, who had been 
on her to like you know sell make some money from the paintings or, or whatever at some point actually they g- break into the apartment and they steal all of them are you fucking kidding me a nephew steals all of them but you know that they, they are alice's but they're like these are not safe in this apartment so they steal all of them and they put them in the vault of a bank and so Alice comes back from her holiday just to come back to the apartment to find the walls, which were once decorated by all these paintings, just completely empty. Um, I'm infuriated. I have questions for the concierge. I have questions for... It's a fucking nephew. It's not even the brother. It's, it's, oh. Yeah, I think it's after her death, after Alice's death, they... Um, did then start selling off the collection piecemeal for money. So it was no longer kept together. She dies in the late 60s and is buried in Père Lachaise next to Gertrude. So that they are... uh, Oh, that's good, at least. Together forever. What do you feel about their relationship? Are you, uh, do you, does it sound like a good relationship? Because it's clearly kind of unequal. Yeah, I mean, I will say this is coloured also by my sparse knowledge of the two of them. But I think the thing that really bugs me, but that keeps coming back to me about their relationship is that to me, Gertrude Stein only gets to be a genius, be it in her own mind or in anyone else's mind, because of Alice B. Toklas. And actually a lot, and uh, let me connect it to contemporary times. Whenever I think about people who get to be publicly talented lauded for their talent geniuses in air quotes or not in air quotes there's almost always someone else who to whom they're passing the buck right that could either be familial wealth that could be like they have a partner who's really rich right like there just is always someone who gets to be a genius because they are partnered with something or someone else who enables it and i think the reason why i have so many feelings about alice b toklas is that Gertrude Stein sounds like she'd be amazing, right? Like from what I've read about her, I think she'd be really fun to hang. Like if I was one of the chosen people who got to go to the salon, I think, you know, and from what I've read about her, she could be very charismatic and funny. She had to want to be that. She wasn't, she didn't give a shit about being liked. But when she turned it on, she turned it on. And Alice Pitoklis was always the one like running around, you know, serving people literally like, right? What are the drinks that you want? She was the one who was cooking. She was the one who was, she was, the one who was organizing the household. Uh, there's something that strikes me as being really upsetting about that. I believe that Alice B. Toklas was super dedicated to Gertrude's, but is that, I mean, is that a life is something that I was going to ask, but then I mean, I'm asking it, but I also feel very much like, what a condescending fucking question for someone else to be like, is that a life, Alice? Alice is like, yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's complicated because you go, well, what were they modeling their lives on? Well, they were modeling it on a heterosexual relationship that they saw Every day there there weren't other models. I don't know that any person, any girl growing up in the States at you know, in the late nineteenth century would have thought that they had any other possible future available to them than doing that for a man. And if you're attracted to women, keeping house and et cetera for a woman, but you also get to be attracted to them. Yeah. It's like, that's a pretty fucking good deal, even though the deal as a whole sucks. You're not evaluating it on those terms. And I think as well, like, setting that aside for a little bit, 
for me, any love story that you can skip over 30 years, as we did without realizing it, at least for me, I went, oh, wait, this is World War II, not World War I, and go, okay, but there weren't enough public disputes and there were enough famous people, enough writers that I think that if they had had disputes, even in front of their friends, this would have been widely documented, that this kind of thing, a kind of uneventful 30, 40 years Maybe it's just me getting older, but I'm like, that sounds pretty nice. <laughs> like, it is impressive, but I also get the feeling that that's because Alice was willing to be totally submissive to Gertrude. It feels a little bit less like two people, you know, kind of pushing things under the rug and compromising. It feels more like Gertrude saying, it's like this. Alice going, are you sure? And her being like, yes, okay. And that being the extent of their conversations. So yes, they were able, like I, I'm of two minds. On the one hand, I agree with you that that does sound wonderful to just be with someone for a long time and to know each other and to really understand each other. And I don't doubt they did, that both of them, there was a mutual understanding and respect and love. But I just, from an outside perspective, reading the work, you know, decades later, I can't kind of escape from the fact that it feels like Gertrude got the best end of this deal. Well, and, and there are two points that go along with that, which is that she's the one who wrote, preparedly, like we don't know, you know, what of these texts, if anything, Alice wrote other than the cookbook, mm-hmm. but she's she's the one who kind of got the final word, yeah. you know, in terms of the relationship, but also uh, that she was the one with the money, it sounds like, from what you're saying, in that she had enough money to buy these paintings, have the apartment in Paris and all that, and then once she died... Alice was legally entitled to almost nothing, perhaps not even the the space in which she was living. So while I do agree completely with all of these points, I think it is worth taking into account that like we are talking about like Alice B. Toklas now and the the she is a huge part of the Gertrude Stein story. And off the top of my head, I couldn't think of any other, you know, artists or writers whose partner was put quite so kind of front and centre in their own reputation, uh, who wasn't independently an artist themselves. So, I mean, like, she does have her own reputation as well, which is sort of outsized what might commonly be considered that of a a muse or the kind of Mm. quote-unquote wife figure of these artists. I wonder too how much the the gender dynamics come into play there where you're going, okay, well, the society can't exactly say that she's lesser because they're the same gender. They run an independent household. So she's not lesser. We don't know exactly what the power dynamics are from the outside. So we have to take her kind of as her own thing. It goes back to what we were talking about a few weeks ago with in terms of what a privilege it is to be taken on your own terms and not as a type. Because yeah. I think that there were a lot, I, th- I think there are an incredible number of wives in history who made households run for great men, for supposed great men, that we just don't know because they're, they just disappear into the background. And the men didn't think they were important enough to write about or were not interested in writing about them for whatever reason. And uh, society had no interest because that was just the norm at the time. And this because the relationship itself was outside of the norm, was unusual enough that... Uh, and again, like there, there's money here. These are white women. These are, you know, this is a very specific situation, but that they have enough privilege to be able to be taken on their own terms. 
Right. Um, another thing which I thought was quite interesting is that idea that, I mean, you know, Gertrude Stein as an artist herself was possibly not that great. I mean, that the jury's slightly out there. But, you know, what she definitely was great as was as a, a facilitator. And it's sort of, it's interesting that her facilitator was very much Alice. And so they exist in this kind of tandem, allowing both of them, allowing the world of the lost generation and the modernists to really propagate. And that was The Love Story. Stay tuned for Mary Fuckkill. And now it's time for our favorite segment, Marry, Fuck, Kill. This week, we're going to be marrying, fucking, and killing people from the real-life story of Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas. So I, for one, am very excited to hear what Chris has to offer. Forgive me, but I thought it would be a little bit too obvious just to offer Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas. And their art collection is the third. <laughs> Your options are Gertrude Stein, Ernest Hemingway, Pablo Picasso. Oh, 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 oh. Picasso, Nanette has convinced me, was the absolute worst person on in history. I thought I had an answer, but then I thought about him, Nanette. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I will fuck Hemingway. Because honestly, like... I think you're making a mistake. That body, that talent. I think you're making a mistake. I don't think he's going to be good. Rachel... I can make it good. He can just lie there. <laughs> I'll do the I'll do the work. You're not wrong. Hemingway, hot? No problem. Yeah. He'd probably ask you if the earth moved for you after uh, he'd done it. I can lie for him, but like the the he's he's lazy. He wants me to do all the work anyway. Yes. You can you really feel that about him through just his writing. Yeah. 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 Kill <laughs> He's a clearly lazy lover from his writing. That sparse style. I'm not saying he'd be a great lie, but I really want to murder Picasso. I guess marry Gertrude Stein and get a lot of household help. <laughs> That's my... <laughs> Gertrude Stein with a cleaning lady and a cook? Yeah. That's um, that's where I've ended up. I mean, she could afford it, presumably. That's, uh, that's what I'm thinking. But if Gertrude Stein loves you, that's my impression of her, right? When she loves someone, including her own brother, right? Until she stopped loving him. That was a special case. But when she loved someone, it was they, they could do no wrong. So Hemingway was like that too. It just happens like five or six times in his lifetime. Yeah, exactly. But no, but I just mean like at her salon as well. Like someone would come and she'd be like, oh, they're amazing. They're incredible. I'm afraid uh, neither of you will like what I'm going to say, but I have to be honest. I have to be true to my feelings. I'm just going to dive right in. The person who's going to die is Ernest Hemingway. Hear me out. He's terrible. Moving on. <laughs> So we've got to fuck and we've got to marry. And this is where I think it's going to get controversial. I'm going to marry Picasso. Ooh. No. And here's why. You love a Scorpio so much. I, first of all, you know how I do. You know I do. I think it's one of those things where I come by his garret and I and he paints a portrait of me. It's gorgeous. Or if it's cubism. It's like, yeah, no, it's not. Come on. You know it's not. And I'm like, what? Especially at the time, and you're just like, what, you're painting my portrait, and that's the fucking portrait? Yeah. 
But here's, and here's, I think both of you will understand this. I do love being idolized, right? Like I do love being kind of made myth. And so I kind of like the idea of my husband painting me being like, oh, this is incredible. Maybe like, I love this because where am I going next? To my lover, Gertrude. Gertrude is going to break my fucking back, right? Like I'm not, like I'm not the same. You want to talk about a cubist painting? I'm a cubist painting after Gertrude, right? Like, my neck is not where it was before. My feet, I don't know where they are. I might have one eye. I might have two. I might have five. And you're not going to marry her, though? Compared to the guy for whom you're just a vagina and some tits? (laughs) I know that if I marry Gertrude, she's not going to do that anymore. Gertrude's suddenly going to be like, oh, where's my food? Math? Oh, the table is not quite set. No, I'm not going to be a fucking... What I want to be is Gertrude's like, I might... Because I'm going to play with her, right? I'm not going to come every day. I mean, I'm going to come every day. But I'm not going to come over every day. I'll come on a Monday. I'll come on a Monday. And then Tuesday, Wednesday, I'm going to leave her dangling, right? Because I'm going to go over to my husband, have him paint a portrait of me and be like, oh, Pablo, you're getting worse. He's going to be like, oh, oh, uh, cuidado. And I'm going to be like, goodbye. And my penis is getting smaller. <laughs> And then Wednesday, and then Wednesday, I'll go visit the tomb. He's Spanish. (laughs) (laughs) I can't do accents. We all know that was the Spanish accent. And then Thursday, I'll go over to Gertrude's again. She'll be like, you're here. She'll cancel the salon. Monday and a Thursday? Yeah. That's fucked up. I know. I know. I'm going to fuck with her brain. Because in another week, I might come every day. And she's going to be like, oh, wifey. Then I'm gone another week. She doesn't fucking know. And then when I come back... Bitches, that house is gone, right? Because we've been fucking so hard. We're in the ground. We're in another region. We're in Middle Earth, right? Like the hobbits are coming and we're like, no hobbits, no. <laughs> we can't. No, we are busy. So that's how I view my life in this awesome world. And I will say, I will leave flowers at the tomb of my erstwhile husband Hemingway as well. Yeah, of course I will. I'll respect him. It wasn't your husband. He was the one you murdered, but yeah. Yeah, and I'll leave flowers there. What did I say? Of your erstwhile husband. Well, yeah, I might have married him briefly and then I killed him. Who to marry, who to kill. I think I'm, I don't, I don't want to end up like uh, Alice B. Tuckless. So I don't think I'm going to marry Gertrude Stein, despite the parties. Mm-hmm. I don't think I could, uh, you know, treat her mean and keep her keen in the same way that uh, Nath is. I uh, I worry I would be yeah, sucked into... I, I would be sucked into Gertrude's orbit. Although it sounds really sexy. It's uh, unsustainable for me. <laughs> and so for that, I'm afraid Gertrude's uh, getting the chop for me. I'm I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to marry Picasso as well. Um, Whoa! I'm going to marry Picasso because... Look, I, I know he's awful. I haven't read about the specific ways in which he it was awful. So it's possible that there's a, a whole bunch of terrible, terrible Picasso, which I just don't know about. Currently, I mainly know bad guy, and I quite like the paintings. Um, <laughs> and like, And he seemed to kind of keep... I wouldn't expect a huge amount from a relationship with Picasso, but, you know, be the muse in some of it. I'd, I'd love a painting of me, which was just a bunch of squares and my eyes all over the place. Like, it'd be, uh, it'd be kind of fun. Um, Somebody's birthday's coming up, listeners. <laughs> Chris, don't be a hard rock when you truly are a gem, baby girl. Respect is just the minimum, you know? I, I just... He doesn't know what you're talking about. <laughs> He's like, I agree with the sentiments, but what? Chris goes home and he's like, 
honestly, Nav just at some point started rhyming, and it was really good. Like, I think she should. I found it really inspiring. <laughs> yeah, and you know, he had uh, he, Picasso had all of his different periods, so I feel a marriage with Picasso would at least kind of keep changing sort of every three, four years. He would probably divorce me. But I mean, as long as he didn't do either of those things, it would continue to be interesting. And is this not a cry for help? You don't want to marry Hemingway. He will literally like make out with your best friend and then marry her. And then like write a whole thing about like how I felt kind of bad about it, but like not that bad, but like women are shit because they'll fuck each other's best friends and then marry them. And it's like, but you did that. You did that, though. And not in a hot way, right? Like, he's going to do that in the not hot way. Yeah. What's the hot way? (laughs) The hot way is all together. Everything you said, but hot. (laughs) It's a sauna, (laughs) but everything you said happened. (laughs) He fucked my best friend, but it was kind of hot. Said nobody ever, as the wine glasses of Midwestern housewives say. I think I would fuck Hemingway. Yeah, you yeah, you would. Because I really like the idea of I like the idea of when it was all over, him rolling over and looking at me and saying, Was it true and brave and good for you? I have to say though, Hemingway though, very sexy just physically, like young Hemingway, that like that type, that just like Give me some floppy hair. Give me, again, Richard Curtis fucked me up. Give me some floppy hair. Give me some, I'm sure he's very inarticulate. I I love it. Give me some, yeah, like unexpressed longing coming out through the writing. I'm so into it. As I said, I will do all the work and I won't do that for just anybody. <laughs> and, and, he, and I agree. Here's the thing. He's, God, young Ernest, so hot. I worry about the both of you. I really do. I worry about your options because I'm sitting here with Gertrude and Bubba. <laughs> at you guys superciliously and just wondering and i'm like yeah he's hot but is he gonna be a good lay and i don't think so i really i worry that's all i want to say as a friend as a lover of gertrude i worry okay real talk if you're attracted enough to somebody Mm -hmm. and they're there and they're into it Mm -hmm. is that not kind of enough sometimes of course it is of course it is and let me be honest i have not like i am i've mostly had an Ernest Hemingway kind of love life until recently. College was very much like, you're hot and floppy haired. Oh, in bed. But I would love to have had more of a Gertrude Stein love life up until now. Oh my God. So true. Yeah. You're hot and floppy haired has taken me very far, Mm -hmm. but also not very far at all. And now I'm reconsidering all my life choices. Right. Whereas me now... Now I can breathe underwater. (laughs) Now I have gills where I didn't even know you could make gills happen. (laughs) But it's really important that listeners know you can go down on a woman and still breathe. There's no point at which you have to hold your breath. That's our public service message. Absolutely. That's it for Mary Fuck Kill. That was this week's episode of We'll Always Have Paris. Join us next time when we'll be discussing the complex dynamics of the love story between Miles Davis and Juliette Cueco. Thanks for joining us and see you next week. <laughs>